Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. It's extraordinary, unthinkable almost, to have one horse of a lifetime as a, a small owner, a one-horse owner. That's exactly what Steve Preston had in Sire de But lo and behold, another one has come along in the shape of Editor Dujit. And that's where we begin today's programme, because Steve has come down to join us here in the Luck on Sunday studio. Living the dream, Steve Preston. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. I mean, quite amazing. Yes, it is. I mean, I can't really put it into words, but we do realise how lucky we are. We're very, very lucky. Where did the journey begin, racehorse ownership journey begin for you? It began for me on basically, well, as a dream, it began all through childhood when my father took me racing and that was always going to be a dream and become more of a reality on my 50th birthday. I've got three sons, Liam, Sean and Ryan, and they decided to open a small bank account and put whatever monies they could afford into it, along with all my friends. And for my 50th, I got this brand new bank account with uh, um, a relatively um, small amount in racehorse terms of money but the proviso was you must go and get yourself into horse racing however you choose to do it that's what you've got to do so I didn't need that much encouragement because this dream suddenly became something that I was almost obliged to do and that's what I did I, I got involved with um, well in the end as everyone probably knows Gary Moore but in order to do that I've phoned around many, many trainers um, looking or asking what the best way to do it would be. And I came up with the idea that we should have a trainer who was prepared to put some of his own money in the game. Mm -hmm. So keep skin in the game, therefore, and also to have a horse that they didn't have in the stable currently. So the consequence of that would be that they were motivated and obviously looking for the best possible solution, not just for me, but for themselves. And Gary Moore, was kind enough to allow us to go and see him. He, uh, he, he made us very welcome at his, at his stable and told us that, you know, we shouldn't do it. It's a mugs game. Um, you will lose your money. Single ownership is not really a profitable thing. And I'm only going to be prepared to do it if you are prepared to write all of your money off and that you allow me to make all the decisions on the horse, when he runs, how he runs, what ground he runs on, which track he runs at. Um, he, laid it, he laid it down to you in, in pretty stark terms, didn't he? Completely it? and utterly, no questions. Uh, it wasn't room for us to move, but perfectly honest, Nick, that, that suited us down to the ground. So, so you went down to see him? Yeah. And he was busy working around the yard while he was... Yeah. He was, well, you know, uh, let's just say busy working around the but he's not shy about what he has to do, picking up uh, um, manure and putting it in bins and uh, just the Gary Moore that probably most people in racing would know and understand. Very straight, very honest, and gave it to us right on the chin. Um, so we discussed and we decided 
yes, we still would like to do it, even though the money probably would never be seen again. And he said, OK, leave it with me. And I think he, it, it was around about entry in 2010. Um, he met us at the track and he told us that he'd probably, or he'd threw a source through a, a bloodstock agent. I think he'd found a horse in France that was interesting. And am I still up for it? I said, yes, still up for it. No question of cash had, had, had been discussed at this stage. Um, so did he, know, did he know your budget or not? No, we didn't discuss it because I think, I, I now know that the situation is he would only do it on what he thought was a worthwhile prospect mm -hmm. and therefore way beyond my expectations of what the budget would have been. So I'm glad we didn't discuss it because probably it would have put me off in the very early days. Um, anyway, off went Jamie, Jamie Moore, who was sent to France to ride this horse came back with a very, very positive report. And Gary said, right, it's 50,000. At which point I nearly fell off the chair because that wasn't the sort of budget we had in mind. You know, I was thinking more around 10,000 mm -hmm. or maybe up to 15. Um, but once the hook was in my lip, I couldn't shake it out. And I f then decided to phone some friends, uh, guy Neil McNulty, Barry Lockett, uh, Dave Simpson, and my, my own eldest son, said they would all put money in. Is it Sean? No, that's Liam. Liam. Sean and Ryan were still quite young at that moment uh -huh. to, to actually physically join in the, the thing. I mean, they join in every other way, but not, not actually with their money. And that, that, was the, uh, that was the syndicate formed from our side. Gary w would put 25 in, 25%, and we came up with the 50,000, which was euros, was 37,000 pounds, I think, in those days. Uh, good old days when pounds were worth something. And... Um, that was Sider Gruji. Uh, he came along uh, in uh, April uh, of that year. It was too late for, t for that season. And, um, you know, that, that horse became what we now know was Sider Gruji. I mean, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yes. A champion chase victory. Yeah. Two Tingle Creeks, was it? Two Tingle Creeks. Two Tingle yeah. Creeks, Clarence House, Clarence Desert House, Orchid. Desert Orchid, two celebrations. Um, yeah, he, he won just about every honour there is to, well, he did win, I think, all the grade one two-mile chases that are available in England. We didn't go to Ireland and race him. We were lucky to, to, to some degree because we did zigzag around Sprinter Sacra. Um, Sprint, that was when Sprinter Sacra had a couple of His issues. Lull, yeah, yeah so you, you filled the void, We you, did step in, two. and when we did race against him one-to-one, -one, he beat us by half a length, and that's because we missed the last fence, or well, that's what I'm going to say anyway. Uh, but jo Jamie uh, took a, well, the horse took an extra step, and Sprinter flew past us. Um, but, you know, that was just brilliant rivalry. And in the Queen Mother that year, unfortunately for him, Sprinter Sacra couldn't run, and uh, we took advantage uh, of that. We also came fourth in, in the Queen Mother Champion Chase when Dodge, Dodging Bullets won. So, yeah, we had a nice time. <laughs> you, you had an e extraordinary time, and he had an amazing career. How did it change you as a person, Steve? Um, I think, I mean, it, it changes you as a person insofar as we, are, we live in the north of England and all our families down south. And the fact that the yard was down south and most of the race courses were, where he featured at least, were down south, it brought us much closer to our friends and family and united a team of people that, you know, I, I would say most of them have had, would put this in their top experiences in their life, you know, as opposed to um, just one-off uh, fun days. It's their lifetime-changing experiences to, exp 
to, to do what we did and to and the rise the meteoric rise of the horse as well um, and the fact that you know we've we got we got so close to the moors you know and Jamie and all his kids um, Josh and his and his little Freddie you know we we just get to know everything uh, about it and your connection to the racing so you become I'd, I'd, I'd say wholer I mean it sounds a bit sentimental but you become wholer as a person and it unites and brings people together and that's what it's done for us more than anything else fantastic feeling and, and you you talk about Gary Moore with such fondness as so many of his his owners do and the, and the whole family you you went through a whole raft of trainers before you before yes, you landed yeah. on one that would actually do it the way you wanted to do it yeah I mean, I mean, there'd be plenty of people out there thinking oh my god i let that one slip through the net yeah well who, who knows if if that one would have ever found side de Grugy. Exactly. so you know that that's what you can't say but yeah i mean fair enough most trainers say you know we know it's tougher trainers especially at the moment um you know i'm not i'm not an owner i'm a trainer um you know so i i haven't got that kind of uh, um interest in in owning horses i know some do i know some buy in buying horses and then place them but um you know the, the majority thought probably you know as a time waster i guess because to all intents and purposes i was just coming out of the blue sky um and, and gary was and kind enough to, to allow us to to go and you weren't coming in as a billionaire saying N not at all no i, I want to no, be spending no. half a million pounds on horses and which is what not some of the some of the top trainers are used to now yeah that i mean you know i seen yesterday that the horse, Mr. Chewy, was it was that three hundred grand they play, paid for him. You know, he came in the Betfair Hurdle yesterday. I think he came sixth. Mm. You know, and it, it's just well, there are plenty way more expensive. Uh, than and that. they're coming up to half a million, aren't they these days? And you know, that that's just mind-boggling because even back when we first started, those kinds of monies weren't changing hands. Not not in jump racing anyway. Um, so yeah, we're 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 kind of lucky. Um, no, we're not kind of lucky. We're very lucky. So um, that that relationships that we forged through that through friendships through family and through the moors is never ever going to be be able to be replaced by anything else that's for sure and, and you're retired now having yes, run a yeah. successful business yes uh, and presumably you're not the sort of person who wants to sit around not doing an awful lot you no. need something to keep you I mean I still go I go I go on the train off to, I'm going to Hereford on Wednesday just to just to go racing for the day you know my, my friend we just trot ourselves off to the station and go to wherever we can where's accessible within the day and back because we love it you know we absolutely love it and whether it's you know a, a relatively low midweek meeting at Hereford or you know champion chase meeting at Cheltenham the buzz is the same you know that feeling of being part of something jump racing especially I really make that distinction I don't get the same feeling from flat racing um, I think that's a little bit more elitist maybe is the right word from my point of view but jump racing is lovely you know there's a good good set of people everyone talks to you and you feel like you're part of a family even as a goer not necessarily as an owner now lightning has struck twice <laughs> but is it fair to say that you've had to you've had to you know un unwrap the purse strings a little bit more to to get yeah. hold of editor de G? we did um, what, what we decided as as owners through the side de Grugy era was not touch the money because if you remember I said the money's written off so if the money's written off you don't need to touch it either mm -hmm. and that money accumulated over, over five years to quite a significant yeah, amount of win? money well I, I, I can't remember the, I mean the horse won something close to 700 780,000 wow. and we had a 75% stake in that but of course you're paying Training all the, fees, jo yeah. the jockeys fees and everything else has to come out of that but we had you know we had a, a good uh, 200 and odd grand sitting in a bank account and 
said, Sajagrush is retiring, the journey ends now for those who want it to end. And three of the guys, um, Dave Simpson, Neil McNulty and my son, said, look, you know, we can't match up to that. We can't possibly, you know, we'll only ever feel negative about the future because of what we've experienced with Saeed de Gruja. Yeah. I'd rather cherish the memory. And that's my, my part in this over. And two guys, Steve O'Brien and Mike O'Brien, who are all life lifelong friends, said, can we step in? So they stepped in, Barry Lockett stayed in, and myself, and that we decided to speak to Gary and say, okay, let's throw the dice again, Gary, see if you can find us another side to Grouchy. And that's when Editor Dejit <laughs> came. <laughs> so, and he was, he was, um, well, he was very poor at first as well. You know, he, he, he came, he pulled up at Kemp, uh, yeah, Sandown, and he came last at Kempton in his first two races as a novice. Um, and then he was injured for almost a year. So our first <laughs> part of, the, of, of his life was the downs of owning a horse, you know. And the horse, I think, was 175,000, so it was, it was a, a decent price to pay f by any standards. And he, he didn't really do much for a year. And then he started to run. He had a couple of disappointing runs, but there was always reasons. He either obviously needed to get fit, race fit again, and then he ran on some ground that was, wasn't right ground for him. It was too heavy. And then from then on, he just, he started to improve and that's all through COVID, you know, when we unfortunately couldn't even go and watch him a couple of the times. Um, up until, you know, he won the Red Rum Chase at Aintree and, uh, and what he's done, you know, in his last uh, few races, winning two, two good handicaps at Cheltenham and then gone on to the Desert Orchid at Christmas mm. where none of us thought he had a prayer against uh, Nuba Nigra and uh, um, some of the horses, oh, obviously Edward Stone, fell that that well, unseated that day so we never got to really find out then and then latterly the re, the re uh, run clarence house so it is amazing yeah Welcome back. Joined by David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, and Jerry McGrath who is combining his role at Goffs uh, with uh, his role as a I'm not quite sure what to describe you as. Every, man of man of many talents for Nicky Henderson. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me back. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's kind of, everything's kind of worked, like this time last year was probably when it was mm. last January, uh, 12 months ago, I announced my retirement from the saddle due to injury. And um, I suppose at the time, I suppose you had that kind of worry of what was going to happen next. And I had a fair idea what I wanted to do and where my kind of career and life was going. But I suppose you're always very worried. It's the unknown. Um, like since I was 18 and when I moved to England first, all I knew was wanting to be a jockey and being a jockey and working for some brilliant people and I suppose then when the reality hit that it wasn't going to happen um, I had to kind of change tack and you know it's at the moment everything's going very well I'm very happy the way things are going uh, and still like very importantly just keeping my foot in the door with seven barrows mm. um, I really enjoy that side of things as well you know like even though I'm massively involved in the bloodstock side of things it's great to be involved with the actual you know the running of a yard and training of a yard as well because they do kind of they're separate kind of worlds really even though they interlink every day of the week they're a bit separate you know so uh, I always from day one I was very keen to kind of um, like I said keep my foot in the door there and kind of keep working with the team there and you were on duty at Warwick yesterday. Dave, where were you yesterday? Were you watching everything from home or at Newbury? I was on duty at Newbury yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it, how was it there? Because I was at, at Warwick. Yeah, it was good. Um, obviously, it, it was it was interesting to see Chris Gordon win the Betfair hurdle with Orkhon Risk. You know, a, a trainer that who is apt to 
portray himself as someone who can't take anything too seriously but you only have to look at what he's done over the last few seasons to realize that there's a there's a sharp mind in there who really knows how to train you know great day for the stable uh, with um, Andy Invictus winning under the trainers Sam Freddie as well so uh, the obviously the the Cheltenham trials the Demon and the game spirit I think were a bit thin but that was to be expected probably because of the drying ground. Yeah, we're talking to Chris Gordon in a few moments time we'll also be talking to Philip Hobbs all, all change possibly at his yard after he struck his 3,000th winner courtesy of the surprise winner Zanza in the Denman chase uh, but the big talking point yesterday Jerry clearly came at Warwick and it was John Bond. Yes he ended up with just one rival to beat but it wasn't the prettiest overall spectacle was it? What were you thinking watching the race? No, and I suppose back to the start, I suppose yesterday morning when we had a few non-runners and stuff like that, it probably just took away from the race a small bit. Um, it would have been fascinating if Gary Moore's horse had run. He was very impressive in a handicap um, around the track previously. Um, and obviously he would have gone a right gallop and made it a real test as well. And obviously the plan was for John Bond maybe to take a lead from Gary Moore's horse. But when he was a non-runner, obviously Aidan and the team did change tack. And like you said, it, was, it probably didn't go according to script. But at the same time, it's tricky, isn't it? Like... If John Bond had gone around there unchallenged and won by eight lengths, people would be crabbing the form saying, you know, he's still only beaten six or eight horses or whatever over fences since he's gone chasing. Um, so people are never really happy, are they? You can never really, you know, keep everyone on side. But I thought it was, it kind of showed the horse's character, his grit, his determination. Uh, it didn't go according to plan down the back, but at the same time, when Aidan needed him, yeah. he responded massively, I thought. And it was quite an interesting bit of tactical riding from Harry Skelton down the back as well, where... Aiden kind of just half eased up on John Bon and Skelton suddenly whizzed by him and almost caught him by surprise. Talking to Aiden afterwards about it, it, it was quite interesting talking about the sort of relative psychology of both jockeys at the time. Definitely, and I suppose we probably saw a small bit of the same in the race beforehand in the Mayor's Hurdle. Harry tried to challenge Theatre Glory kind of halfway down the back as well, and just like the commentator actually said, eyeball her. Um, you know, just to see if he could unnerve her and just if there was a way of trying to beat her, it was probably the way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think we just saw a small bit of evidence of that in the race beforehand. And he tried the same again um, in the chase. And fair play to Harry and Dan because they, they had a plan, didn't they? You know, they took a lead. They, they saw an opportunity on the back to try get John Bond under pressure. He's still a novice. They're both novices. You know, that's the... And these are still trials as well. That's the other thing. But, uh, no, I, I think it was fair play to the skeletons. It was a great bit of kind of... Um, kind of a bit of a plan but um, thankfully John Bond still kind of um, came on top. Well he made life interesting for us yesterday as well at least it wasn't completely predictable and it's made us think it's given us a talking point Nicky Henderson trainer of John Bond's on the line now Nicky I know you've got a very busy morning I promised I'd keep it short you've got a ton of owners on the place today uh, what was your what was your immediate reaction yesterday and what do you think this morning? Uh, well first of all he's absolutely fine this morning he's 100%. Good news. Um, and the other interesting thing is he had a really good blow. Um, I mean, like, <laughs> far more than you would have won well, either time this year. Um, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm going to take the positives out of this, not the negatives. What was the feeling? Yeah, well, it was a bit of a shock horror suddenly when they turned down the back straight. Aiden was minding his own business and... Um, he, he jumped beautifully. I thought he jumped a nice gallop over the first three. Um, he probably just eased it down for a, for a second just as they turned into the back straight. And then suddenly Harry swooped a bit like a sort of buzzard trying to <laughs> jump on top of a rabbit or something and just completely took them all by surprise. And it caught... 
not not necessarily eight and certain, but the horse was all of a sudden asked to go from one one gear to another, and and um, it caught him on the hop for a moment, um, and. You know, at the end of the day, he was he was well on top, and the further they were going to go, the better he was going to go. I'm not saying he wants further; he'd obviously get further. But um, interesting is, it was was what a, it gave him a good blow. It it, it was a preparatory race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not surprisingly, he wasn't wound up for this, as if it was the Arkle. It was it was it was being used as a preparation for the Arkle. Um, so at the end of the day, he's had a good blow. He's had a good gallop, um, and we're going to look forward to March. How differently would you be training him between now and Cheltenham, as distinct from between Christmas and now? Um, he'll have a quiet week, and then he'll start work again. I think you have to just probably keep an eye on how much work he is doing. He's a horse that does himself very, very, very well. Um, there's no doubt he was on the the, the, the big side, if you like. Uh, he always looks well, um, and you know he's that sort of horse. Um, and he'll have to keep. We'll, we'll have to just keep an eye on his weight and his and his work rate. We probably need to just make sure we're doing plenty with him. But which is, you know, again, he's a very good workhorse, and therefore he finds his work very easy. Um, the one thing we don't do is go bashing him and Constitution Hill together because that would be stupid. Um, so, but he'll have to, as I say, he finds it, it day-to-day routine pretty straightforward, um, which means that you've just got to keep an eye on how much he's doing and maybe just make sure he's doing a little bit more perhaps, yeah. Interesting. Uh, how is Constitution Hill okay or well, well with him? Yeah, very good. Yeah, Michael was down here yesterday. He worked yesterday. As we know, we've got four weeks from Tuesday. Um, he's got some work to do, but it's gradually getting more serious. Um, and I'm, <laughs> it, it's not easy with him because finding horses that can um, keep him company is, is not the easiest thing in the world. No, no. Oh, we talked about it, didn't we, earlier on in the in the series about having to having to jump horses into gallops with him and 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 whatnot are you running out of galloping companions now no 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 but i mean you can't you know we have ways and means of doing it but i mean it's there there aren't um i've I've always joked with michael that he's gonna have to come by as a pacemaker but uh i know we could get away without it but and i mean i would he'll have an away day before Cheltenham anyway uh, where will you take him, Nicky? That I don't know at the moment. It would depend on ground, really. I mean, he I, I probably wouldn't have wanted to go um, this weekend. Um, I mean, Newbury might have been an option, but, um, you know, that ground was, you'd have to say, it was probably quick enough for him. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, to, to go and have a gallop on this morning. Um, so, I mean, we've always used Kempton in the past. I don't see why we wouldn't do that again. I'm hoping Barney will let us go and have a normal day there a fortnight before. Don't think you're going to have to twist his arm too hard. Uh, just one final question before I let you go. Uh, just shuffling this mayor's pack, you said Epitome would likely go for the mayor's head, likely but not definite. Um, Marie's Rock, the owner was suggesting this week, might go the other way up to the stairs. And you had Theatre Glory was seriously impressive yesterday. 
could she get a, a supplementary into the mayor's as well? I, I think she very easily could, actually. We're just literally looking at it right now um, and seeing that this is... I, I've got to say she was very impressive. Uh, she loves that ground. I mean, to be fair, Love Envoy wasn't there, um, which would have made it very interesting. Um, but on that ground, she, she was very, very impressive. Yeah. Uh, she went a good gallop. And we have got... It, it's nice. We've got three very good mares, and um, we've got to shuffle the pack a little bit. I mean, you could have all three in the same race, or we could try and spread them around and see what happens. But at the moment, they're all in good form. I mean, um, Epitant's great. Um, and, and Marie's Rock's in particularly good form. So, but there is a possibility Marie's Rock could go up to three because I think the stairs is a is still quite an open division. Um, Gordon's horse um, would be the obvious one I've seen. I think. I mean, you've always got Paisley Parks and all sorts of horses, and the horse that won Cheltenham as well, the French horse. Um, but I think it is an open division, and she does stay. But my goodness, she's not slow. So it's it. That's a little bit of a dilemma. It's a bit of fun. We'll be thinking. You know, we've got time to think about it anyway. Dave, I want to move on to to Newbury and talk about the day there and the significance of the day for for Philip Hobbs, in particular, someone who's had a slightly quieter time this season than his own high standards would normally suggest but who can still deliver it where it matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Zanza was... Uh, it's, it's, it's odd to think of a, of a horse, of a course specialist at Newbury, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it, we always think of it as a very fair, open, galloping track. You know, it's not, it's not Chester or Epsom or any of those idiosyncratic places that um, produce course specialists, but Zanza does seem to go extremely well there. Um, he was an outsider yesterday for the Denman Chase, and... He delivered, and it was the 3,000th winner of Philip Hobbs' illustrious career, which is an amazing landmark. And it's not all been—it's not all about numbers. There's been some some real quality there over the years as well. A particular favourite of mine was was Rooster Booster, the champion hurdle winner, um, and of course Deffy Dessay as well, uh, who was a Triumph Hurdle winner and then returned to. Uh, Win group grade ones over fences, so it was a, an amazing achievement yesterday for I think, Philip Hobbs. I think we can um, connect to to Philip now, who's joining us from his stables in in Somerset. Hi, Philip. Morning, Nick. Um, and there was a it was a bit of a landmark moment for a number of reasons yesterday. Just 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 explain why. Uh, well, f first of all, the three thousand winners, which is um, we're delighted to have got there. It's, it's been a little bit slow recently, but we got there in the end anyway. Um, also, that uh, Johnson Weiss, who's been our assistant for 30 years, is going to join um, me on the licence. Probably there won't be much happening different at home in that we're still running the business, but uh, nevertheless, um, Johnson will probably go racing a bit more. Um, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going away. So I'll be very much involved as I have been for the last nearly 40 years. But is it is it though part of a part of a succession plan of sorts? Are you are you future proofing to to a certain extent? Yes, I mean uh, um, I'm I'm certainly I've got no plans for when that might happen um, uh, because I'm very much intending to be um, just as involved as I have been. Um, Johnson's got a few uh, younger owners to bring to the table, so 
and I'll be still in contact with all with uh, my owners as has been the case up to now. And how, is that something that you you found over the over the last few years that it's just getting a little harder to get some of the some of the newer money into the stable? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, we've been sent some six-figure horses over the years, but I've never bought a six-figure horse. And, you know, realistically, um, it's you, you need those horses to be able to compete at the top end. We've been fortunate enough to find some that have obviously been a lot cheaper, but, you know. That's that's pretty remarkable. That will have a lot of people raising an eyebrow that you've never you've never yourself bought a six-figure horse into the yard. No, as I say, you know, um, we have had owners send us six-figure horses, but uh, you know, I've not not had ever had an order to buy one for that sort of money. Three thousand winners is a is an awful lot uh, of winners. My, my issue now is if I start going through a retrospective of your career, you'll think I'm trying to finish you off, which I which I'm not at all. But did yesterday give you a, a little bit of a chance to reflect on on that total and, and what it's taken to get there? Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure it's bound to really. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it, we've had some fantastic times and and uh, and actually just as importantly met some really good people. I mean, the 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 Pepiots that own Zanzar, Nick Pepiot now with some of his friends that own Zanzar, Nick's father, um, Robin had horses with us since 1988. And, um, you know, it's great to have that uh, continue with his son as well. And, you know, we've got plenty of other owners that have been with us for a very, very long time as well. So that obviously is very rewarding. And you go to Newbury yesterday with, with three pretty interesting chances. Did you think Zanza would be the, be the one that could deliver? Not at all. We, were, to be honest, we declared him, and then afterwards, we're wondering well, what are we doing running in this race because uh, we shouldn't, as far as the racing is concerned, really be there. And it was discussed, and we thought, oh, blimey, we're all here now. We'll run. But uh, couldn't have thought it would happen. I'm sure the handicap is going to have his say, but um, uh, he, he's an amazing horse now. He's he's won, um, had six runs at Newbury. He's won five. The only time he got beat was in the Betfair Hurdle, where he got beaten two lengths. I mean, that's, that's a, a, an incredible record. Why do you think he, he, he doesn't love it so much everywhere else? Well, he, he's probably got two minds about the job a bit. I think he's that bright that he can probably get himself handicapped elsewhere. Yeah, and, and he's done an extremely good job of it. But, of course, yesterday handicapping was, was completely academic. What do you do with him now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, we'll see what the handicapper does on Tuesday. And... Um, I suppose we're going to be running around in condition races for, realistically for some place money. Um, um, there's two two-and-a-half-mile handicap chases at, at Newbury in March, which are an, an option, but um, <laughs> uh, they're both two-and-a-half, which is probably looking a bit short for him now. And, Philip, of all those, of all those 3,000 winners, if there, was, if there was one that you could, you could bottle and take away with you, which would it be? I think it would have to be Rooster Booster, really, because he was amazing, you know, when, when he was at his best, which was an old age as well. I think when he went to Chamberlain Hurdle, he was, um, was he eight or nine? Nine, I think. But um, he he went 18 months without getting beaten. He was the highest rated hurdler around at the time. And, uh, you know, it was amazing when you could just uh, have a horse that, that the others won't be taking on. Well, Philip, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Congratulations and look forward to a new chapter with, with Johnson White alongside. Thank you very much.
Filipov's joining us from his stables in Minehead in, in Somerset. 3,000's a lot. Zanza, the unlikely hero yesterday. What did you make of the race as a whole, Jerry? Um, poor old hitman. I was defending his honour beforehand. I, I think he might have broken blood vessels again. Yeah, probably unfortunate. But yeah, like ba back to Mr. Hobbs. It's an incredible feat. Like, as long as I've been involved in racing, Philip Hobbs has always been training horses and training horses at the top level. And, you know, it's an incredible achievement. Uh, and it's exciting, I imagine, for a stable. And it'll probably just you know, rejuvenate everything with Johnson White coming onto the licence and it's interesting that he's bringing a few new younger yeah. owners and just refreshes the whole thing because, you know, with this industry, it is, you just need that every so often, I suppose, with social media, the way it is nowadays, everything, you just have to go at the times, don't you? And it's brilliant to see that they're joining, well, they've been joined forces for 30 years, which is an incredible achievement as well, isn't it? But, yeah, I think that'll be very interesting for the stable going forward. Um, and with Zanzi, yeah, he's, I, I, I did think Tom O'Brien's, uh, interview afterwards was interesting like you said sometimes he gets called names for what looks like he's given it a bad ride because he's not the easiest you know he's one of those horses you have to drop him out and he comes with one run and I thought Tom gave him a great ride yesterday because on ratings he had a stone to find at least didn't he with some of those horses and I just thought it was interesting just Tom's celebration as well I think that meant an awful lot yeah. that he was the fella who rode the 3000 winner I suppose they've been kind of waiting for the last couple of weeks or whatever um, and obviously with Dickie Johnson retiring a few years Tom took took the mantle and I think it meant an awful lot to him yesterday and I, he, I think he showed that when Cross the line, you know. What does it say for Philip Hobbs, Dave? Really, that in the last 25, 28 years, he's had two jockeys. Well, it tells you what most of us already know about Philip Hobbs, and that is that there's no side to him. When you know, we all know what we all know what social media can be like. And yesterday, nothing but good things were said by people, owners, ex-jockeys, jockeys uh, about. Philip Hobbs as a, as a man, not as a trainer, but as a guy who doesn't have any side, uh, who is always pleasant to deal with. And that's an amazing thing that he's never personally bought uh, a horse for six figures. Um, that's, that must make him a pretty rare bird among the, uh, the training ranks these days. Um, and a recognition now, clearly, as Jerry was saying, of what he needs in order for this operation to once again be competitive at the very highest level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the changes that are um, uh, the best phrase, as you said, is future-proofing, isn't it? I mm -hmm. guess. But um, one thing I, I find interesting about uh, Zanza, Zanzar, is that he's—we um, all acknowledge that, yeah, he might be something of a of a thinker. But Newbury is a strange place, it seems to me, for a horse like that to perform. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because you'd, you'd it's so conventional. Yeah and, yeah, and you would think that for 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 horses who who do need some sort of thing to keep them interested, then the, the, the open plains of Newbury wouldn't be the, the first track that, that would spring to mind. Well, another horse who's a, a specialist at, at Newbury, it seems, given the fact he's now won the game Spirit Chase two years in succession, is Funambul Sivilla, last year's champion chase runner-up for Venetia Williams. Now, Jerry, Grenatine was disappointing here. You know, he had a stone in hand of his rivals, it seems. Can you give him a bye, and do you still take him seriously for the top two-mile chases in, in, off the back of this? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because, like, obviously, Charlie Deutsch and Venetia, they kind of normal kind of scenario. They popped out, made the running. Charlie went a good gallop. And, like, Grenatine loomed up, turning for home, and it looked as if, you know, it was just a matter of time. I think he, he jumped four out very well, and it was a matter of time before Harry pressed the button and went, and he just didn't. You know, it was, it was a bit kind of flat. He looked a bit flat yesterday, a bit lacklustre. And you couldn't blame the ground or anything, I wouldn't have thought. He's, he likes top of the ground, but maybe something might come to light, like mm. Hitman or something like that. But, no, I, I was a bit disappointed with Grenatine, I think 
that was like he's probably won those horses. Everything was in his favour yesterday. Uh, but yeah, no fair play, Charlie and, and Venetia strike again. This is the second time winning the race, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, of course, Venetia Williams, all her horses went on soft ground, don't they, Dave? Isn't that? <laughs> yeah, that that's right. It's a surprise to see um, Fernando's civil run yesterday. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Grenatine was flat. I, I think beforehand he was about a 12 to 1 shot for the Queen Mother Champion Chase. So he wasn't sort of uppermost in our thoughts for that race. Um, I, I'd still personally be inclined to run him. Um, the winner, as you say, won the race 12 months previously. He was a 40 to 1 shot, wasn't he, when he, he mm -hmm. finished second in the Champion Chase last year? Of course, when Shishkin pulled up. And I believe that's the plan, uh, talking to Venetia Williams after the race. I think I can now connect with Andrew Rhodes, who's the Chief Executive of the Gambling Commission. Andrew, good morning. Thanks for, thanks for joining us this morning. I was really interested in your interview in the, in the Racing Post today, and I, I was particularly struck by, by the section in which you, you tried to, to outline and clarify exactly what your instructions had been to bookmakers as regards affordability checks in this last period. Just, but perhaps you can underline that, that for us. What's been the Gambling Commission's role in outlining what they should be doing? No, it's a, it's a really good question. There's an awful lot of, um, I think, a bit of misinformation, misunderstanding around at the moment. And it's it's obviously a quite an emotional topic for a lot of people and completely understand that. You know, our, the problem we have to solve here are the sorts of cases we've been seeing in the last few years that really haven't been improving. And this is people losing amounts of money well, well beyond their means. And when I say that, I'm not talking about some moral judgment as to what you can spend your money on. I'm talking about people losing, say, £245,000 when they earn £30,000, somebody losing £70,000 in, in 10 hours on the day they, they open their account. And these are the problems that we've said the industry has really got to solve, and everybody agrees on that. So whether that's in the trade press around gambling, whether that's operators, consumers, politicians, everybody agrees on that. And that's what we've said the industry really has to focus on. I think that's, I think that's really important to remember. And the sorts of people that we're talking about, the sorts of proportions we're talking about here, are people who are at risk around gambling. And let's, let's remember, 22.5 million people a year will gamble on a regular basis in this country. It's the largest online uh, gambling industry in the world. Um, most people won't be affected, but there is a proportion of people who, who will be, and that, that's in hundreds of thousands, and they can have terrible consequences, devastating impacts for them and their families. So we have to, we have to guard against that, and that's, that's part of our obligations. And that's really where we want industry to be focused, is in, in making sure that they are uh, reducing the level of risk for, for consumers in that area. What, what exactly have you told the bookmakers to do as regards affordability checks? What exactly have you mandated? So we haven't mandated affordability checks. What we've said to the industry is you have to make sure that you have policies and procedures in place that guard against risk for consumers. So, and all operators, that's just a, a requirement that they have to have. They have to meet that requirement. We've not specified it must be at this, this pounds level. We've not specified what proportion of people's income they're allowed to gamble. What we've tried to do is offer advice on different things the industry might consider. But you have to remember each operator, <clears throat> excuse me, is also different. 
So we've got operators who will be at the, if I call it the upper end of the market in terms of the net worth of the customers they've got. So they'll have people gambling very large amounts of money and that's fine. So long as they've got the procedures in place to manage that, then there's no issue with that whatsoever. And you've also got operators within the industry who will be high frequency, low spend, which are obviously completely different. So it's up to the individual operator to pitch things where they see the risk as being and that's what we've said is perfectly appropriate it's the way the model is constructed so it's how the legislation works and that's what we've told them to focus on we haven't said you know, you must uh, check pay slips we haven't said you must ask for bank statements but operators have to undertake checks or rather tests when they feel a consumer has reached a certain level of spend uh, to satisfy themselves that they that they can go beyond that. It's not the only thing we expect operators to look at. We expect them to look at how much someone is playing, whether their patterns of behaviour have changed, whether there uh, are other risk factors. But let's remember, the proportion of people that we're really talking about here will be less than 10% yes. of people who are engaged in gambling on a regular basis. This isn't about what, what gets described as average punters. Uh, well, I, I, I was joined earlier on in, in the show, Andrew, I don't know if you if you saw by, by Steve Preston. Um, oh, I joined I, just I, after I, that, I'm afraid. And I, I, cer I certainly um, didn't, didn't prep him in any way. We were talking about his own punting habits. He said he was a 20 to 50 pound punter, maybe bet two, three, four times a week. He called himself regular in every respect, regular in the amounts he was punting, regular in terms of how often he was doing it. He was a loser, but not by, by a huge amount. He is a a very successful businessman he has means he he has been asked for affordability checks so if he's being asked for affordability checks it suggests that surely more than 20 percent of punters are being asked for are being asked for something that you would describe as as friction on the way in to to, to placing a bet so it's, it's really difficult for me to comment on an individual case without without knowing all the details. So what you described there is not the sort of thing that I would expect to be caught up here. What he's describing right, there so, would be so you're, would be you're, no you're, you're saying Andrew, I that's do. wrong. Are the, are the bookmakers wrong then to be asking him for an affordability check for for his bank statements and his and his pay slips? Well, I don't know the reason why they did. I I, I don't know what they were looking at. I don't know where they've decided to, to pitch their risk. There are bookmakers who have decided to change the, the mix of customers they've got. There are lots of different moving things in the gambling industry at the moment. So it wouldn't be fair for me to comment on an individual case without being able to see all the details. What you describe is not the sort of problem that we are trying to solve or the industry says it's trying to solve. But without knowing all the details, it's a bit like when I get People talk to me about withdrawals without without knowing all the details. It's difficult for me to comment on individual cases. What we are what we are focused on are levels of gambling which are likely to be harmful to an individual. They may not be, but we can see the elevated risk, and that's where we've asked the industry to pay much closer attention because we've seen in recent years these cases that everybody feels are wrong have continued to occur. So, how are the industry getting this so wrong then? Well, it depends on it depends on your perception, doesn't it? So there's a lot there's a lot of discussion around this, and we have to remember the problem we're trying to solve, which, which I've talked about already. There are lots of different moving parts within the gambling industry at the moment. 
So you've got operators who've decided that they don't want to have higher spending customers. You've got operators who've changed the mix of what they do, the different products they want to offer. But what we, we do need the white paper to be published, obviously, because we need that government policy position to be set out. And hopefully we will, we will get that soon. We've been operating for a long time without having that. And we understand the reasons why. We understand why that's been difficult. So we'll need to move forward with that. I'm not saying operators are, are getting things wrong necessarily. At some point when <clears throat> you are gambling and you reach a, a risk threshold for that operator, they're going to have to do something about that. They're going to have to ask some questions. In terms of financial information, I would be quite surprised if that was the first interaction, unless you're depositing a very large amount of money and then we're talking about money laundering checks. then. I would expect that you've had you know, an interaction before financial information has been requested, but ultimately an operator has to be able to satisfy itself. It has to ask some questions. There are a lot of different ways it can go about answering those questions. So I'm not going to say that operators are necessarily getting it wrong, but clearly there are changes in the industry. See, see, what I don't understand, Andrew, is that, is that for two and a half years now since this topic has been on the table and we've been discussing it every week, we have been laboring perhaps under the under the view now you're saying it's a misapprehension the affordability checks are round the corner anytime soon in the white paper the bookmakers are laying the groundwork for that at your behest and now you're telling us that that's wrong but you've said nothing to this point so why have you said nothing till now well i think you in a sense you answer the question a little bit then nick you know it's a difficult one for the regulator when you're waiting for a white paper to be published you're trying not to preempt what the government is going to do. We've obviously been talking to the government throughout the development of the white paper. The government has made clear that it, it thinks something needs to happen in this space. The Betting and Gaming Council's chair has previously said, I think it was to the House of Lords, that something needs to happen in this space. There are lots of people who said that we can't carry on with the sorts of cases that we've seen. So during the last you know, two and a half years that you mentioned, you know, we've been focused on trying to deal with those issues. This is a tricky one for us to talk about because as soon as, and I'm sure it'll happen today, mm. as soon as I've said something to the racing pollster, I say something to you today, and I'm really glad you've invited me on today to be able to talk about this. Somebody will say, we're prejudging the white paper or, or something else. The reality is there are, there are risks that are present in the industry now that need to be addressed and that's what we've been focused on. As I said, it's in that range of customers that are experiencing harm or are likely to. And it's the sorts of extreme cases that we've been drawing attention to during the last two years. That's right. where and we're really focused. Andrew, let's get, let's, get, let's get down to the numbers then. How many by percentage problem gamblers are there in, in the UK? So these figures get used in different ways by people. And I saw some of that. Uh, in the media over the no, weekend. No, but you're, you're, so, you're the chief executive yeah, yeah. of the Gambling Commission, so never mind what other people say, what do you say? Because you're, you're the guy that's supposed to, to, supposed to know for sure. So the problem gambling rate for the UK population, which is the whole population, includes people who gamble and don't gamble, is between 0.3 and 0.5%, and that's several hundred thousand people. Beyond that, you've got people at risk, so that percentage starts to build out. It's different, though, between different activities. Yeah. So it's important when people talk about the problem gambling rate, they don't apply that to every activity yeah, because I'm, online the problem gambling absolutely. rate is obviously quite a lot higher. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to that point. You raise a very interesting point and I'm going to come to that very soon because I want to talk about uh, the different ways you can gamble and the graduation of risk. But first of all, I want to talk about um, what you believe your role is 
as chief executive of the Gambling Commission, what you believe the Gambling Commission's role is. Would you agree with me that your role is to represent the interests of all gambling consumers? Yes, I've said exactly that um, in a number of, on a number of occasions. Yeah. <clears throat> I said exactly that when I spoke to the whole industry, or actually the majority of the industry back in November. So what, what, perce what percentage of gamblers, Andrew, are not at risk or um, at risk of gambling-related harm? Well, that varies depending on what their form of gambling is. So the majority of people are now gambling online. And we know that the, the, the risk uh, online, because you can play 24 hours a day, different markets, uh, you can play in, on different events around the world, we know that that is higher. Yeah. So in terms of the problem gambling rate, it's, it's important to understand that that does break down to different levels. But, but so. you can't, you've got to be able to put a figure on it for me. How many, how many gamblers <clears throat> are not considered at risk? So again, it depends on what they're gambling on. So the, the thing here, Nick, and this comes to... But give, but give me a global figure, and then I can move on to the next question. How many, how, many, how many gamblers from your latest data are not considered at risk? What percentage? Well, that will clearly be high. As I've said, 22 mm. and a half million people gamble on a regular yep. basis. Most will not experience any harm at all. That's why we're focused on the proportion we will be. So if you're gambling online, the, the online gambling harm rate is a little under 10%. Mm -hmm. So that's considerably higher than the, the rate for the okay, whole I th population. I, 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 think, I think we're both driving towards the same point here. So over 90% of people are considered to be safe gamblers who are not at risk of doing themselves or their family any harm. And it's, it's way up into the, into the high 90s as well. You and, I, you and I both know that. Now, you talk about graduated risk. Um, there are reasons, for example, why there are variable speed limits around different roads mm -hmm. in the country. You are at more risk of causing an accident on one than you are in the other. Why is all sports betting, and particularly betting on horse racing, being dealt with in the same way as what you yourself describe in your latest study as a much higher risk form of gambling, i.e. online casinos and slots? And why isn't there a differentiation? And why have you not stipulated that there should be a differentiation to all the bookmakers? Well, that assumes that people who gamble on horse racing only gamble on horse racing, and that's not the case. So, for, so I would agree with you, that, and I've said this publicly many, many times, the vast majority of people who engage in gambling on a regular basis will not be at risk. They will not experience harm. Some, however, will, and some will be of higher risk. But if you talk about horse racing and pretend it's on its own, then I'm afraid that's misleading. So what we see for those who are at risk, and this is who we're talking about here. So I would agree with people, broadly speaking, who say, well, uh, you know, you should focus on those people who, who might be at risk and leave everybody else alone. I would largely agree with that. It's a bit more complicated, but I would largely agree with that. Where but you, people but you, are, you, accept, you accept that betting on horse racing in and of itself is a fundamentally less risky pursuit, if you want to use that adjective, than betting casino slots. Well, we have, to, we have to see these things together, Nick. So the point that I'm trying to make here is people who are at risk with gambling are not only necessarily betting on racing. They will have a number of different things they're doing. We're predominantly here talking about online. So when, some, when a bookmaker is looking at a customer 
they will look at their activity, yes, on horse racing, but they may also be doing online casino. They may also be betting on football. They may also be doing a number of other things. So they look at their aggregated activity. That's what we're talking about. So the, the whole debate about trying to separate horse racing out, I understand why people do that and why people talk about it, but people who are at risk around gambling harm are not doing solely one thing and operators need to look at the totality of that customer's activity that's the important thing you cannot separate racing out but well, another can. factor you out. can set you can separate racing and sports betting out by having by having separate wallets and monitoring people's behavior in different ways that they they bet you you yourself in your latest study in 2021 you're very clear what you said about the most risky behaviors yes i mean there are products that are more risky than other things but yeah. then we, we, can't, we can't pretend, Nick, that people who are gambling are, are that separated out because they're not. We know people at risk will gamble on what we call multiple verticals. So they will have a whole range of products they're gambling on. I and mean, what you're suggesting there would be for the industry to, in effect, disaggregate itself and separate it out into these different, different products. And that's, that's not necessarily the right thing to do for consumers who are not at risk. But there is something in relation to horse racing's risks specifically. So, you know, our job is to regulate gambling. It's not for me to try and give expert opinion on any given sport. You know, there are others who will do that. But we do know from the data that for, for, for racing, for horse racing online, 70% of the losses to bookmakers come from just 1% of accounts. And that's a much higher reliance than we see in sports betting. It's a much higher reliance than we see across other forms of gambling. So horse racing is different in that we definitely see a different level of losses from a smaller number of people. And that's something that is also you know, a risk factor for racing and it's something that we see in looking at the activity around gambling on racing. We agreed on a figure in the end, somewhere deep into the 90s, of the percentage of gamblers. And as you quite rightly point out, over 22 million people in this country that you are, you are representing as a gambling commission. But how are you, how are you re representing that 97, 98, 99%? All they're seeing over the last two years is friction on the way in and just as importantly friction on the way out of their dealings with with bookmakers well and Nick, Nick, we didn't we didn't agree on that number so you asked me about uh, about well, where we, the harm where the harm level is and I've said if people are gambling online then the numbers quite a bit higher that, that than you just quoted but I'm happy to say that the vast majority of people who engage in gambling are unlikely to be harmed. They're likely to be in that recreational space. It will not be a huge part of what they do, be something that they will enjoy. And yes, we're here for all consumers. We have an obligation to permit gambling, providing it meets the licensing objectives. It has to be fair and open, has to be crime free, and it has to be, uh, we have to not harm people. And that's where we're focused on. So our efforts are around making sure that gambling is fair and open and making sure that operators reduce uh, the level of, of harm and that's what we're here for as a regulator. How much time do you spend talking to gamblers Andrew? So we've got a whole range of different ways that we do this so we've got in-depth research 
from uh, our research and statistics team. So we publish that on a regular basis. I meet with people with lived experience from gambling. I gamble myself. I talk to a lot of other people that do. I speak to the industry on a regular basis. I met with the chief executives of the largest operators just two weeks ago. And I go out and see people on a regular basis and, and talk to them about what, what they're doing. This gambling review is a it's been described as a once in a generation opportunity to make gambling fair and safe for all to bring you know, the analog into a into a digital age what's been your most significant contribution to this review do you think as a gambling commission i think the most significant contribution is bringing the wider research to the white paper and that wider understanding of how people actually gamble. That's why I'm emphasizing the point today. I don't think you can see any particular sport or any particular activity in isolation. Actually, the, the uh, participation and prevalence data on our paths to play data show what the motivations and behaviors of different gamblers is and how they actually behave in reality. There's an awful lot of strong opinion and I'm sure there'll be plenty on your program today. And I think that's, that's fine. This is an area that people do have strong opinions on in all kinds of directions. What we try and do is cut through some of that with the evidence, the statistics, the research, the detailed analysis of what goes on to try and help, help inform the best decision making yeah. that we can. But I bring you back to your I bring you back to your own national strategic assessment where you say the speed and frequency of the gambling opportunity within a game impacts the risk. Activities that permit high frequency participation are more likely to be associated with harm and more readily facilitate problematic behavior such as as loss chasing. Activities with high event frequency are likely to be the most attractive. As a result, online slots, casino and bingo are at higher risk. We are focusing on products that behave like this and the measures that can be put in place to make these products safer. And now you're telling me you cannot look at each individual method of gambling or each individual area of gambling discreetly, yet you advocated a degree of discretion in that strategic assessment in 2020. That's not what I said though, Nick. So I would agree with that assessment because it's it's based on the evidence. Those, those products are higher risk. But what I also said to you is when you're talking about somebody who is gambling at a higher risk level, they are often gambling in multiple different ways, not just those things. They'll be engaging in other things as well. So let's take a, let's make up an example. It's always, always difficult, but make up an example of somebody who is using online slots, doing online casino, but is also betting on the racing. So you might, and they might be betting on football as well. Chances are they're probably doing all of those sorts of things. If an operator is then intervening with them because they've reached a certain level of activity or spend, and that could just be an interaction checking they're okay, that'll be because of the totality of what they're doing. So I don't think you and I are in different places, Nick, when we talk about what the risks are. I'm not saying the risks of those products aren't the highest. They are. We say it on a very regular basis. But you have to see the total customer behavior as a whole. But this, but this that's, sport, that's, this, what, that's what the industry has to do. But the effect on this industry, the racing industry, has been huge. One senior executive estimated a forty million pound loss to the industry based on a loss of eight hundred million pound turnover. Every, everybody knows that people are migrating 
to the black market and you will say, well, you don't have the data for that. Well, of course not, because it's the black market. But we do have evidence of significant losses to the industry. This is an industry that employs tens of thousands of people, is responsible for a massive workforce, is contributing hundreds of millions to the Exchequer on an annual basis. And the fact that um, regulator wants to lump in betting on horse racing with high risk, high energy, high frequency activities means that racing's being 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 lumped in with with something that needs to be regulated much more much more severely. Okay, Nick, let's take let's take those two things. So I'm not saying that racing is the same as the other things. You keep making the point, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that with somebody who might be at risk of gambling, you have to see the totality of what they do. Some of that might be racing. Some of it might be a mixture of other things. Bookmakers are looking at the, the overall level of activity. So you cannot separate racing out if somebody's gambling on a multitude of things. But let's take the argument about the losses to the racing industry. So, as I said earlier on, our job is to regulate gambling. It's not to try and give expert commentary on any particular sport or subset within the industry beyond what we see in terms of the gambling statistics. But let's look at, let's look at racing. What is the effect of bookmakers deciding they want to have lower risk customers, which a number have done? What's the effect of competition with other gambling products? What's the effect of best odds guarantees going because of media disputes? What's the effect of all the complaints we see about field sizes? What's the effect that racing is a much, much older demographic than other forms of sports betting? What's the effect of racing being dependent on 70% of losses to bookmakers, which, which want to fund the industry, coming from just 1% of accounts? don't need much movement in all of those things to have an effect. So I don't think you can sensibly say that for everything that's going on in, in racing and everything that's gone on since the pandemic and all the different issues that swirl around, that you can accurately say this is all down to bookmakers asking questions about affordability. Also, when we talk about the people who are, are at risk, and I don't disagree with your point about online slots, etc. But if you look at the totality of a customer's but, activity, but Andrew, we're Andrew, talking about every, everything less than you've 10 just said is customers. everything you've just said is purely anecdotal. So you're you're trying to well, pick apart my my non-evidence-based assertion that it's to do with uh, the threat of affordability checks, and everything you've just thrown at me is completely anecdotal. The idea that it's because of an aging population. That's a lot of people dying to knock off 40 million from 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 racing's coffers in in no time at all. What I'm saying to you, Nick, is you've got people arguing the only issue here can be bookmakers asking questions about someone's financial position when they reach a certain trigger. So these are not, these should not be average punters. And we've certainly never said that we would want bookmakers asking questions of people. You know, it's it, the idea that we've sat down and gone, if you want to put £50 on, on the races, that you should have an affordability check. That's just nonsense. What I'm saying to you is, just as some people are arguing, well, it can only come down to this issue, there are a whole range of other issues. And I think there are questions about what are the interrelated effects of that? But I come back to the point that I understand why you want to make the point, and I, I do understand your point, that there are higher risk products than horse racing. Yes, there are. There are higher risk products than, than you know, compared to a lot of different activities that people are engaging with gambling. But people who are at risk from gambling do not solely gamble on one thing or another. And that's why bookmakers will look at the totality of what they do. And that might have an effect on racing if people are therefore gambling less as a result in those in those cohorts. There's no doubt that the income into racing has fallen. But also blackjack is at 
two-thirds of the level it was in, in 2019. The overall activity in the gambling industry in the last year has seen, actually, I think it's 4 billion more bets placed amongst the largest operators, 4 million active, more active accounts. But we've seen losses to, to play it from players going down. So we're definitely seeing some adjustments. But I don't think you can, you, I don't think the evidence exists to pin something on one specific factor. There are always more things going on within gambling than that. Andrew, we'll have to leave it there. Andrew Rose, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Nick.